Well, as you can see, I'm back in the pulpit, trying something different. As my former boss used to say, comfortably 10 feet above contradiction. (laughs) And plus, now I have a better view to see which of you is sleeping. Be warned, I'm watching. Today is our observance of All Saints Day, that day when the church across the globe remembers the saints, the sancti in Latin, the holy ones, the holy people from our midst, who have now gone on to heavenly places. The reading for today comes from Revelation, that enigmatic final book of the Bible. I take from my text the second half of verse 14. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Please pray with me. O Holy One, we come before you today with a sacred and holy task, to remember the saints and to honor them. Inspire us through your Holy Spirit that those memories and those lives may may become real to us again. Amen. This text, this text from Revelation 7, I bet is familiar to you. Maybe it was here, in this space, that you last heard it. You remember? That afternoon you filed in, far more somber than today, nodded at those you knew. There were mumbles of greetings, forced smiles, people dressed in black. The man you know from church who always wears a golf shirt, now in his finest suit. You settled into the pews, though not as comfortably as normal. And then the family in mourning walks by you, and you look up at them. Feel the pain of sympathy in your chest. I am the resurrection and the life you hear through the sound system. The same words you've heard again and again, they trigger something in you. All who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Instinctually, you're held in that place of memory. The times past when you've heard those lines come back. But one memory, one memory in particular comes back to you. That one moment, that one memorial service that you can never quite get out of your head. Then later, a reading from Revelation, chapter 7, beginning with the ninth verse. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Then at that time, you heard those words with barely a flicker of understanding. Your mind was elsewhere as it should have been, as everyone else's was. But looking back, it's almost as if someone had slid this text in. Have you read it closely? Considered those words that were being said? Revelation, apocalypsis in Greek, a revealing. Although this book is anything but revealing. Have you read through all of Revelation? 
It's supposed to be written by a man named John on the island of Patmos, not far from Ephesus. Some say it was John the Apostle, but we don't really know for sure. You know how nuts it is? I mean, seven seals and seven trumpets and four horses, all of different colors, death and destruction and the Lamb and Michael. Martin Luther hated this book. He didn't want it read in any Lutheran churches. If you follow the revised common lectionary, that three-year cycle of readings that's supposed to force us to read through the whole Bible, at least the relevant parts, the lectionary has barely any mention of Revelation. The authors of the Revised Common Lectionary decided that this book was not essential for a saving faith. And yet, and yet at one of the most significant times in your life, when you are laying to rest the ones you loved, have this text. You look through it. Revelation is probably best consumed over a glass of wine or two. With good friends, probably not the serious types from church, but the friends who make up your posse so that you can laugh at all the absurdities, like prepubescent boys looking through a Victoria's Secrets catalog, not really sure what's going on, but knowing that you're doing not, not something quite right while you're giggling all the way. This text from Revelation 7 is one of the less absurd passages from the book, but still, listen to it. Chapter 7, just before we read this, chapter 7 opens with... I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea or against any tree. I don't even know what that image would look like. You see the whole of the earth? How? Four angels holding back the winds? How is that? What does that even mean? Then the author, then another angel puts marks on the foreheads of 144,000 people, like, a tat- like that tattoo you mistakenly got at age 19. <laughs> then, shift scene. No longer 144,000, but a great multitude that no one can count. They're standing in front of a throne. Oh, and also in front of a lamb. A lamb. Take another sip of your wine. And they are all worshiping the throne. Not in the kind of worship you see here at First Congregational Church. Calm, focused, internal proper. No, oh no, this is, this is full body worship, crying out in loud voices like some hysterical camp meeting, people falling down on their faces. And then my favorite part, <laughs> I don't know if you caught this, where one of the elders, and I'm not sure where he came from, one of the elders, was he just like chilling, hanging out on the side? One of the elders is standing next to the author and casually asks, hey, what's going on here? He takes another bite of his popcorn and sips his oversized Coca-Cola. Good show, eh? And the author is like, I have no idea what's happening. Nada. You tell me. Weird. Very, very weird. What was John of Patmos thinking? It makes the show Stranger Things, that show that your friend is binge-watching on Netflix and can't stop talking about, Revelation makes that seem normal. Hawkins, Ohio, circa 1984, totally normal. How's the wine? But what bothers me about this text is not the weirdness or the absurdities or how, un- or how uncomfortable Revelation makes me feel as a good liberal Christian. I can handle the weirdness. I actually like weirdness. Normal is boring. 
Now, what, what bothers me is how lightly the text seems to take death. You see, when you hear this passage at a funeral or a memorial service, the point is that your loved one is one of those robed in white, standing around the throne of God. That's why we read Revelation 7 then. And that's why it's the appointed text for All Saints Day. You're supposed to hear these words and feel better. Oh, don't worry, everything's okay. We just read Revelation 7. We're all fine here. Just fine. Don't worry, Nick is in a better place. Eleanor is playing bridge with her friends now. It's all fairways and greens for old Dave. You remember those comments? They're intended in goodwill, for sure, just as this passage is intended in goodwill. But darn it, death is death. It's not that easy. It's not about celebrating around a throne in white robes. Death sucks. I'll bet no one knows that better than you do. Recently, I picked up a book by Nicholas Walterstorff. I remember seeing Walterstorff around the halls of Yale Divinity School. He was retired then, tall, dignified, with a big bush, almost Afro-like, of starkly white hair. One of my friends elbowed me as he went by. There's Professor Walterstorff, he said in a muted voice. I looked up his list of impressive publications, but one caught my eye. A book called Lament for a Son. It's the first book that shows up on Amazon. Walterstorff was a legendary philosopher of religion, but Lament for a Son is not a philosophical book, at least not in the traditional sense. It was a journal he kept after the death of his 25-year-old son who died suddenly mountain climbing in Europe. Walterstorff published it many years after the death and it became by far his best-selling book. It's a remarkable window into a father's raw pain, a struggle that grief entails. Listen to his words about his son Eric. Perhaps in them, you might hear some of your own grief. We took Eric too much for granted. Perhaps we all take each other too much for granted. The routines of life distract us. Our own pursuits make us oblivious. Our anxieties and sorrows unmindful. The beauties of the familiar go unremarked. Not treasure each other enough. Eric was a gift to us for 25 years. When the gift was finally snatched away, I realized how great it was. But then I could not tell him. An outpouring of letters arrived, many expressing appreciation for Eric. They all made me weep again each word of praise, a stab of loss. 
How can I be thankful in his goneness for what he was? I find I am, but the pain of no more outweighs the gratitude of the once was. Will it always be so? I didn't know how much I loved him until he was gone. Is love like that? You all tell me. You know. Later, Walter Storff writes, it's the neverness that is so painful. Never again to be here with us. Never to sit with, ta- at, with us at table. Never to travel with us. Never to laugh with us. Never to cry with us. Never to embrace with us as he leaves for school. Never to see his brother and sister Mary. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. Only our death can stop the pain of his death. A month, a year, five years, with that I could live, but not this forever. Death is the great leveler, so our writers have always told us. Of course they're right. But they've neglected to mention the uniqueness of each death and the solitude of suffering which accompanies that uniqueness. We say, I know how you're feeling, but we don't. Walter Storff sprinkles his his book with quotations from writers he he admired. Here's one from Augustine. The tears stream down, and I let them flow as freely as they would, making of them a pillow for my heart. On them it rested. This past week, I learned of the death of Nick Gates. Nick graduated from Harvard in 2013. I I knew him while I served as a chaplain there. Nick rode on the crew team, as I had, uh, and he was in my same fraternity. A tough and intense guy, even by Harvard standards, and very bright. He died on October 24th at age 26. I hadn't seen him in a couple years, and now I'll never see him again. So yeah, I have a hard time with Revelation 7. Not sure I get you, John of Patmos, the author of Revelation. You purveyor of angelic imagery meant to ease the pain. It doesn't work, at least for me. In its absurdity, its weirdness, is it anything but a distraction? When I close my eyes and wander off into the deep recesses of my mind, I can see him, old man John. I had to make my way down the rocky slope to the ledge that the town person had pointed out to me. I could feel the sharp edges of the rocks press into my feet through the leather soles of my sandals. I had to turn sideways so as not to stumble as I descended, careful step by careful step. He was crouched at the edge of his cave, staring out into the blue Mediterranean Sea, some 200 feet below him. He didn't even acknowledge my presence, even though I knew he could hear me coming. 
He was a man who'd long since given up caring about his appearance. He wore little more than a faded loincloth. His shoulders and chest were thin, yet he had a small paunch of a belly that develops inevitably with old age. The white hair and beard were unkempt, and I could see the deep creases in his face from years of staring at the sea, with the white glare of the sun drying out his skin until it appeared as leather. I noticed the scars, the unmistakable lines on his back, flogging that had made him bleed and which new skin had roughly covered up. The bones in his hands were crooked. Was it because they had been broken under torture and badly set? Or was it merely the ongoing pain of years of endless arthritis, pain that he now ignored because it had become so much a part of life? Why did you write it? I asked him. I moved around so I could look down upon him and force a response. Why did you write that book? He looked up at me. I can never forget those eyes, dark brown, so that the pupils nearly blended with the iris. I couldn't tell whether it was the intensity of their opaqueness that unnerved me, or was it instead the look of oblivion, as though the events of his life were such that he could only cope by forgetting. He stood up, and since he was shorter than I expected, I found those eyes looking up at me. Have you ever had visions? he asked. Quietly, as though he wasn't even speaking to me. Visions? They come upon you, attack you, sudden-like. Vivid, horrifically vivid, so you can't escape them. They come like loud flashes on your psyche and demand of you a response. No, I said, I've never had visions like that. Only dreams. These weren't dreams. Don turned around and walked into the cave behind him. After a few paces, he found his stool and sat down, suddenly exhausted. I followed him and sat down nearby on the hard stone floor. The cool rock was a respite from the burning sun a few feet away. The visions came after the imprisonment, John began. It was as though the whole world had changed. We had a thriving church in Ephesus, several churches actually. New believers joined us each week. Since I was old, I no longer had to do much of the preaching. I could sit on the stone benches in our church and witness the great work of God unfolding before me. We supported over a hundred widows and orphans, many of whom were not even believers. There were no more beggars on the street. We saw to their needs. The philosophers, those argumentative types who relished verbal conflict and showing off their knowledge, no longer even bothered us on the streets or in the forum. The people knew better. No one took them seriously anymore. Then the new governor arrived, appointed by the new Caesar in Rome, a horrible Satan named Domitian. His first act was to require public sacrifice to the emperor. We pleaded for an exception for the followers of the way. He only smiled in return. I don't know where that man's hatred of God came from. The imprisonments began shortly thereafter, and then the tortures. To see people you loved endure that, to hear the screams and see the scars, not the physical scars, but the scars written on their faces that showed they would never be the same again. They used Christians as entertainment for the crowds, bodies torn apart by exotic beasts to make men happy. These same people who so admired our good works now forgot that and relished in our demise. I offered myself up, 
old though I was. The governor tried to get me to recant my beliefs. He considered a public execution, but then thought better of it. My death might inspire others, so he sent me here to Patmos, cut off from my family of believers, deprived of of information as to their fate, and left to live out my days in this cave. It was then that the visions came. Night after night, until I was afraid to sleep. I could only purge them by writing them down. I begged the local people for something to write on. They took pity on an old broken man. And so I wrote and wrote. And gradually the visions left me alone. I guess I should have expected someone to come asking me about them. In spite of the hard edge to John's voice, there was no malice in his eyes. And the multitude in white robes around the throne... What of that vision? John's brown eyes seemed to widen on his face and glistened as moisture collected in them. They passed through the ordeal, don't you see? The struggles, the pains, the heartaches, the sufferings, both great and small, of mind and body, they passed through them, and I saw them clean, joyous, and free. Their blood, their suffering, God transformed into something new. It was God speaking to me. It was God saying that he saw. He saw all the ordeal. He knew what happened. He knew all the ups and downs of life. He walked with them through it. They were not alone after all. The evil of the world, the governor and the emperor and the mocking crowds, they lost. John reached out to seize me by the arm. His strength, even with those gnarled hands, surprised me. You must believe it. If you believe nothing else, you must believe that, that God saw it. He did not ignore the, idea, the ordeal, and he redeemed them. John let go of my arm and pulled back. Believe in God? I do, I responded. No, I mean, do you really believe in God? Do you believe that even in the midst of what happened in Ephesus, God was there? Can even such a place be blessed by God? Can the worst ordeals, with all their fears and horrors, still have God present to see and to feel? I thought of the hospital rooms that I'd been in, the constant beeping of machines, the labored breathing of someone I knew, but who no longer seemed to know me. I've looked around at the faces of the people in those rooms, the pain of the ordeal etched on their faces. I thought of the conversations I've had with people, conversations where they shared about depression, about addiction, about crimes committed, about families lost and estranged. I thought of the people who had no hope and no future and knew it, and those who had no hope but somehow didn't quite realize it. I thought of people who described the slow decay of a marriage and emotional abuse endured, and others who lived with the ache of solitude. Can even such a place be blessed by God, I heard John say to me. Yes. Yes, I whispered back. Well, if God can be there with them, 
with them even through the worst trials, is it such a stretch to believe that they can be with God in the end? That vision, that place around the throne, is not the place for the people you love in your heart. Those people will always be with you in your memories and your experiences here when you do something that reminds you of them. That vision, that vision around the throne is the place for the people that God loves. And God's love is more expansive than yours. The multitudes, the multitudes I saw, so many that you could not count them, but God could count them because God loved them. I thought about the words from Revelation 7 once again. For this reason they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. As I made my way back up the rocky cliff, I turned and took one more look at old John. I realized the look in his eyes hadn't been one of oblivion or intense hate. It had been the look of quiet hope. It was a hope he had for all the saints. A multitude. A multitude to the glory of God. A perpetual light shine upon them.